geopolitics and empire is joined by Scotsman David McCutcheon, a, a man of many hats. We first met out in Kazakhstan, where we were both uh, working for our boss, Nursultan Nazarbayev at the Nazarbayev Intellectual Schools. Uh, he's now the leader of Restore Scotland, a Scottish political party, which was founded in 2020 on the 700th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Arbroath. The party stands for the independence of Scotland, the liberty of the individual, the value and the autonomy of the family, the sanctity of human life, and the health and well-being of the people of Scotland. It's been a while, David. How is life in new normal Scotland? We certainly have our challenges politically um, with the current scene, but life is good. And uh, we are um, we're doing, uh, we're making a good start to things with the political party and hope to uh, really get a bit of traction over the coming years um, as we make the case for full independence for Scotland, both from the UK and from the EU. All right. Uh, when I think of Scotland, uh, you know, people might laugh. What comes to mind immediately is the Highlander film uh, and TV series, Sean Connery, the color green for some reason, kilts, tough bearded men, Game of Thrones, whiskey uh, and freedom. And it's funny, whiskey, you just told me um, you're also working in, you're working in many industries. You, you're working in, uh, you've got Hubmeyer, which is a um, uh, e-commerce site and, and in the field of whiskey as well. And you're, you know, a politician now. And so, as I said, man of many hats, I unfortunately know little of Scotland, but I think this will be a great opportunity for myself and listeners to learn more. I was, um, pleasantly surprised when I discovered you you founded this new political party. Uh, it would be great if you could sort of give us a, a bit of a crash course, Scotland 101, and you know why you saw the need for a new political party and what problems exist in, in Scotland that need fixing. And you know what are the main issues right now on your radar, politically speaking, you know, in relation to Scotland and, and your political party? A message from our sponsors. The Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. For example, if you go to your barber for a 30-minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's Borderless Health Insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation, book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, a monthly members group call, and my second premium broadcast called Dissident Thinker, where I conduct interviews and provide solo analysis. Dissident Thinker is also available on Rockfin and for supporters on Locals. So the Scot uh, Scottish is a very ancient identity, and uh, I think the Scottish national self-consciousness, -con even though um, we wouldn't necessarily have referred to it such 2,000 years ago, but it does date back to the Roman era, uh, the Scots uh, famously 
uh, held back the Roman legions and Northern Scotland was one of the few parts of Western Europe that was never conquered. And if you read uh, the speech of the earliest known uh, Scot, uh, a Celt by the name of Calgacus, um, uh, which uh, survives um, thanks to Roman historiography, um, you have this enormous uh, and passionate uh, plea for independence. And that's been a recurring theme in our history. Uh, Scotland fought uh, numerous wars uh, against uh, the Vikings and against its neighbours. Um, it has had a centuries-long desire to be more or less left in peace, allowed to do our own thing, allowed to be self-governing. Uh, that really fell apart uh, in 1707 uh, with the Act of Union, when the Scottish Parliament at that time I um, uh, agreed to go into a union uh, between England and Scotland. And uh, the politicians at that time that voted for Scotland to join uh, with England subsequently were known as a parcel of rogues. Uh, there were very strong and credible accusations that they were essentially bought out. Um, so Scotland and England's uh, history in a far closer sense over the past 300 years has been interconnected and Scots have uh, obviously played a role uh, in the British Empire, but that desire for independence never died away. In the 19th century, it really took uh, the form um, of ecclesiastical disputes. So Scots were, um, for instance, uh, at the forefront of resisting the spread of uh, an English form of Episcopalianism called Anglicanism. Uh, Scots uh, did a lot to make sure that uh, they were able to choose their own ministers in the local kirks and uh, tried very hard to defend uh, Presbyterianism in Scotland. You had um, a landowning class already by this time that was very much uh, loyal to the English crown. And um, and one of the things that we saw in the 19th century was, uh, you know, terrible uh, clearances from the highlands that you mentioned in your introduction there. Um, and uh, this is really stuck in the Scottish memory, the way in which, and I actually, currently I live on the edge of the highlands. This is an area um, uh, studded with uh, little cottages and ruins where once there would have been thriving farms. Uh, and now it's barren and depopulated, and uh, it's one of the legacies for us uh, of the Union. So um, moving into the 20th century, you had the, the founding uh, in 1933 of the Scottish National Party, the current party of government in Scotland, and uh, you uh, they had basically a sort of almost like decades in the wilderness, making very little progress. Um, but coming towards the end of the century, we, they started to really have an enormous breakthrough culminating in a referendum in 2014 on uh, Scottish independence, uh, which uh, sadly was narrowly lost and... Um, Following the referendum, uh, you really had new leadership come into the SNP, 
uh, a new leadership that was maybe less concerned about independence, more uh, bothered about the sort of like usual Western palette of woke issues and this sort of petty authoritarianism that we're seeing. You had a huge tranche of uh, bills being pushed through the Scottish Parliament designed to restrict all sorts of liberties, um, uh, a particular emphasis on speech. And uh, recently we've had hate, hate crime legislation that come through uh, that has been uh, widely criticised from all elements of Scottish society. Everyone has managed to unite the secular, the National Secular Society, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the Presbyterians came out and uh, voted against the, the Law Society of Scotland. The, the, the civil society in Scotland was very strongly opposed to this. But there is a ruling faction uh, around the current Scottish government uh, that is frankly not particularly bothered by independence. Uh, they have other agendas, uh, you know, essentially trying to... <laughs> turn Scotland into the woker parts of California. And uh, yeah, so that's what we're fighting against. The other major um, uh, national conversation that we had in recent years was about Brexit, you know. And uh, if you take uh, the Scottish ruling class, 120, for instance, if you look at the Scottish Parliament, 129 uh, members of the Scottish Parliament, there's maybe one or two um, that... Uh, weren't opposed to Brexit um, in the Scottish Parliament. And, um, it's the, the the level of group think there is incredible. And um, if you go down um, the ranks in the SNP and uh, the Scottish Greens, for instance, it's on the pro-indie side, this makes no sense whatsoever, but on the pro-indie side, we have almost uniform um, opposition to Brexit and uh, almost uniform desire for an independent Scotland to rejoin the European Union. So the, on the one hand, they're making the case for national sovereignty to get out of the UK. On the other hand, they're making the case against it because they want to rejoin the EU, which is completely illogical. And... Um, and the grassroots know it, and even in the SNP, which is an explicitly pro-EU party, about a third of the members voted for Brexit. So um, we are there to be that voice for true independence, for full national sovereignty for Scotland, not being beholden either to uh, Westminster or Brussels. Yeah, I wanted to comment on that. I had a question, you know, generally, I'm always in favor of independence, you know, at the individual level uh, and collective. My country, uh, Croatia, became independent of Yugoslavia. Uh, but soon after we jumped, uh, as you say, back into empire when when Croatia joined the European Union, what we call Croatian Croatians, we call it Euroslavia. So we went we left Yugoslavia. We were free momentarily. And we jump back into the frying pan into Euroslavia. I consider the EU to be an amalgamation of uh, technocracy, Nazism, and the Soviet system. And I don't use that lightly. There are investigations by people like uh, Dr. Rath, who says that um, the Brussels EU has its roots uh, in 1940s Nazism. Um, 
and you know we have soviet dissidents i think his name was, was bukowski who called the the eu the new european soviet and now we're seeing the technocratic aspect of it so for me the eu is a totalitarian construct whichever way you cut it and uh, i found an article of yours in the national a year ago you wrote you know if elected we will back efforts to pursue independence from the uk while completely opposing any policies that would surrender our newfound sovereignty as an independent scotland to the institutions of the eu as a party we cannot see the merits of decoupling ourselves from one remote and elitist political institution only to weld ourselves to an even more remote and elitist one in no way does this represent political independence end quote so um you know what are what for you what do you think right now you guys are in the uk what um going forward and this will take years maybe i don't know maybe decades but what is the real possibility of scotland breaking free from the uk and then being able to remain free from the eu because those are two different struggles as well yeah um and there are different struggles in one sense. The first battle, we only have to win once, in a sense. And I think if Scotland were to become independent, it would, it, at most, you would maybe have 15, 20% of the voting population not being reconciled to that and wanting to re enter the UK, at most. Um, I, I think there's. Um, it's interesting when I speak to um, uh, folks on the unionist side, side in private conversation, um, folk are often already acknowledging the independence um, in some sort of medium-term horizon is practically an inevitability. That's not to say there isn't a major fight ahead of us. Um, the question of then guarding that independence, well, that will become a generational struggle. And I don't think it's just necessarily a case of guarding our independence against the European Union. It's uh, essential that we look to guard ourselves against any form of surrender of sovereignty to any uh, multinational organisation. Uh, there's risk in which, you know, Scotland could become um, uh, a tool of NATO, I think, uh, if it was to rejoin the European Union, it's very likely um, that that would come with um, re-entry into or entry into NATO. So our membership of NATO essentially was in some ways sort of grandfathered in as part of the process. Um, the, interestingly, the Scottish National Party's current position is that they would re-enter the European Union without a referendum. Um, now, that's interesting in a couple of senses. First of all, they're showing again that they have this a strongly authoritarian streak, anti-democratic. They're very afraid of the popular voice. But I think it's also, um, uh, it reveals the fact that they um, are afraid they might lose. Um, they will constantly repeat this statistic about, oh, two-thirds of Scots voted against Brexit. But the question that was being asked in 2016 with regard to Brexit is a different one that will be asked in an independent Scotland. We won't be having a conversation about Brexit because we'll no longer be part of Britain. It'll be about whether we want to surrender that hard-won sovereignty. 
And uh, what's interesting is the coalition uh, that would oppose re-entry into the European Union. I, I know of and have met many figures across the political spectrum from hard left to the right uh, who think that Scottish re-entry into the European Union would be a disaster. And uh, I think that our, our political conversation is beginning to move on from this instinctive left-right paradigm, this way of viewing the world as um, you know, battle between socialism and capitalism, to I think what is a truer uh, reflection of the existential political struggle in the West at the moment, which is uh, the dispute between nationalism and any form of defence of localism or you know an autonomy of uh, people's uh, self determination and so on on the one hand and globalism on the other. So. Globalism has lots of power, lots of friends in high places, but if you really get down and engage with people on the grassroots, it's very, very few friends. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot I, there I wanted to go in different directions, uh, but since you mentioned uh, globalism, for me, we're, we're now seeing it manifest itself very openly because they can't, you know, when you go open with the totalitarian system, you have to reveal your face. You, you know, it's, it's that for lo the longest time, it's been the velvet glove uh, over the iron fist. And at some point that has to come off. Uh, and now we're witnessing this authoritarianism. You, you've alluded to it uh, earlier with the all over the Western world, this authoritarianism that's coming out, this you called it petty authoritarianism, but it, it's steadily growing from free speech to all kinds of liberties we're, we're losing. And you know now, now we see it manifest in the Great Reset, right? World Economic Forum and, and all of what was previously, you know, the secret Bilderberg meetings from 1954 and Trilateral Commission. And now they've gone full open with the World Economic Forum. Uh, and you have further thoughts on... on you know, globalism and, 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 you know, what, what's going on with Klaus Schwab and, you know, all, all of these things everyone's talking about now, the, the World Economic Forum. You, you know, um, I listen to geopolitics and empire all the time, and you've had guests on such as Patrick would uh, give the backstory really, really well. And um, I don't necessarily want to rehash all of that. Um, I, I mean, Klaus Schwab's recent comments about you know, sitting in the Canadian cabinet and oh, half of these people we were, were people we trained. I mean, it's so blatant. It's so obvious. I think so much of what was happening with COVID was very much like that as well. They're no longer hiding uh, their intentions. Instead, they're trying to condition the population to get used to absurdities. Are trying to condition people to get used to the the jack with the heavy hand of the state, and um, I, I think for me the one message that I would really have to definitely to your listeners, to people that are that that get it, that see the big picture, is the importance of action and the importance of avoiding being trapped into a sort of cycle of fear. Don't become like a rabbit staring at a car headlights coming towards you. I think there's a tremendous amount that people can do, uh, whether it's um, you know getting involved politically, writing, um, you know, raising awareness locally, building networks, developing the sort of parallel um, economic structures that I think 
uh, are really important for liberty. But people have to act. And I think that's one of the things that's really missing. And that was part of the motivation for me getting involved in politics. Yeah, and that goes back. I had the question then on Restore Scotland. Uh, if you could tell us, you know, is it gaining traction? Uh, from what you were telling me, it seems there, it's, there's a lot positive going for Restore Scotland. You know, it must, it's a long, hard road building a political party. But, you know, how is Restore Scotland doing? Well, when we, when we first launched, we launched, um, uh, as you say, on the 700th anniversary of uh, the signing of the Declaration of Arbroath. And uh, our public launch was um, the following year, last year. We launched a few weeks before the election, and um, we got a lot of traction with some mainstream news outlets in the, the first weeks. And then everything came to a shuttering halt. Part of the reason was that the former First Minister uh, for Scotland, Alex Salmond, uh, who had been facing a sort of form of judicial persecution um, uh, with interesting ties up into the Scottish establishment, uh, launched the Alaba Party at about the same time, appears to have called round a number of the other minor parties and asked people to fold. So we never got the call, but um, we contested the election with you know handful of candidates, only a few weeks to go. And uh, actually, subsequently, following the election, we started to get that trickle of members coming in. But it is interesting the way in which, uh, with the occasional exception as a minor party, the way you're controlled is basically by being ignored. And uh, we um, have, for instance, just to give one example or Wikipedia article, very well written, obeys all the rules about, uh, you know, style and so on. It's uh, essential for, uh, for a Wikipedia article, as far as uh, I could tell, uh, looking at it and, you know, whoever put it together, there was very little wrong with it. Uh, and all of a sudden, it's being speedily deleted. So that's a, an example of the sort of pressure um, that you have as a minor party. And one of the things that, that can lead to is minor parties taking kind of ridiculous stances. It's not doing the basics right of growing a political party, putting in the necessary infrastructure that you need. You need to make sure that you're ticking all the boxes as far as compliance, as far as, you know, donations and so on. So my uh, task and role as I see as the first leader of the party is really to put in place a really good foundation. And I'm sure We'll have other people coming into the party over the coming years that will be able to really take it on to the next level. Uh, it's a startup. It comes with all the challenges of a startup. You know, the eight hours uh, a week, as you've uh, referred to in the past. But um, yeah, I, I think I, I think uh, we're starting to see that trickle of members coming through that gives us hope and optimism. Uh, the other decision that we've made um, in terms of the growth of this minor political party as it is at the moment, is um, to build local networks and not to rely on technology. There is a way of growing a party where you basically um, you spend a lot of money with Facebook, you benefit from Facebook advertising, and that becomes a sort of virtuous cycle. But then you're dependent on them. Uh, you're dependent on all manner of uh, apps and so on to grow your message. 
we do do that, but the main focus of our activity as a minor party is local networks, local events, and building organically. And we believe that will be far more sustainable in the long term um, because when we our turn, our time as any um, not 100% pro-natal parties, time will inevitably come when our time comes to uh, be deplatformed. And we will have a network in place that will be able to survive that. And that's absolutely what we're all about. Yeah, that's the best way of thinking. I do the same thing with geopolitics and empire. You know, why would I spend money on Facebook when Facebook restricts my page so no one can see my posts? It's, it's nonsense. You know, Reddit deletes my post. I just stopped using all of those platforms. And I'm just going, uh, building organically what we're doing on the podcast. And it's it's a longer road, but it seems to be working thanks to listeners sharing uh, uh, the podcast and material. Uh, just quickly on, on Brexit, I just wanted to comment, you know, so they've left the EU. Um, but, you know, soon after we saw Britain discussing joining NAFTA or what is now known U.S., the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, NAFTA 2.0. For me, NAFTA is the foundation of the North American uh, Union. And this was a red flag for me and immediately made me think of, um, you know, the 1939 globalist plan known as the Atlantic Union. So in 1939, this union uh, which want, it wants to it, the plan was to create a supranational regional economic political union um, called the Atlantic Union, which would begin with U.S., Britain, uh, and Canada, you know, joining into a regional union. And so it's funny now that Britain leaves the EU, and they were discussing joining the North American right uh, union, which will, I'll, I'll call, which uh, initially was like knocked off but you know what 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 are your thoughts just briefly um on where what will happen to britain now that it's outside of the eu is it just going to stay as it is or you see them trying to push to join the you know us mexico canada agreement uh, where they what's going to happen there it was definitely um amongst brexit campaigners there was definitely an atlanticist element there were those that so Brexit is an opportunity to really strengthen and deepen uh, transatlantic ties, uh, including on trade. Um, so Daniel Hannan, for instance, really good example of someone uh, that uh, favours a far stronger relationship there. Um, I mean, the idea of uh, joining like that is just essentially to turn the British Isles into airstrip one, that idea from you know the Orwell novel that we would just become the sort of outpost of uh, sort of great the greater Americas forever. So I, I think it's it's very much against the the spirit of Brexit. In some ways, um, Boris Johnson has been a colossal disappointment to uh, the Conservatives. Uh, he's not really sort of knuckled down and tried to make uh, the best of Brexit. He's not tried to, um, or he's tried but not been particularly successful in forming trade deals with uh, the economies and the countries that matter. And particularly the failure to get a deal with um, the United States, I think, is very telling. He may very well have managed had uh, President Trump been re-elected. But um, President Biden is very, very strongly opposed to 
any sort of sense of the spirit of Brexit being rewarded. So, and uh, one of the sort of weird uh, dynamics that's at play at the moment is the the Euro-Atlanticists in the UK are just going absolutely out of their way to show that they're more war war hawkish even than the State Department. You know, they've really, they're sort of going into, uh, uh, I mean, we had, for instance, just earlier on today, we had Ben Wallace, the UK Defence Secretary, uh, saying that the UK was going to give, and I quote the, uh, give Russia kick up the backside or kick them out of Crimea. I mean, it's extraordinary language to use. He was specifically brought in the Scots Guard, which is uh, unfortunate, but uh, he sort of said, well, we did it back in the time of the Crimean War, we're going to do it again. Um, there, and interestingly, again, on a, from a Scottish perspective, the SNP is totally dominated by uh, these Euro-Atlanticists. Um, the defence spokespeople, the, the sort of miniature foreign and defence policy establishment within the Scottish National Party wants um, uh, hard and fast re-entry, not only into the European Union, but also into NATO. Before asking you about Ukraine, so you and I both lived um, in Kazakhstan and we, we knew interesting people. We've, we've talked to people in government there in, in Kazakhstan and uh, the precursor to what's happening in Ukraine was, I think, first what happened in Kazakhstan in, in January. I think there are links between, you know, what, what's going on and just what are your thoughts on what happened in Kazakhstan? Um, it's very difficult looking at the situation from the outside to know exactly um, the causes. I think there's uh, certain things that we can see about the outcome and the results. Uh, there has been a bit of a changing of the guards. Um, uh, it would seem as though there's an effort to show that there's a degree of continuity from the, the Nazarbayev regime. Uh, but if you look, um, if you follow Kazakh news media, there's almost daily announcements about um, folks being fired and uh, hired and so on. Um, there will be, obviously, the trial of... Um, uh, Karim Masimov, and I guess we would expect more to come out about that. And um, there's uh, there was a Kazakh uh, political scientist that was reading earlier on that uh, was suggesting that the narrative developing around Masimov was that they became aware of a plot, a sort of colour revolution type plot, um, to overthrow the Nazarbayev regime and rather than trying to prevent it, um, just let it happen. So Masimov was head of the KGB, the Kazakh KGB at the time. So um, I, I think we'll, maybe a few years from now, a little bit further from the event as testimonies come out about those times, we'll start to build up a sort of better picture of what happened. I know there are other versions uh, out there that it was a fake coup. <laughs> is uh, one of the one of the ones that's doing the rounds, and um, I think that's pretty close to what you saw in Turkey uh, five or six years ago. And I think that's probably a good explanation uh, as to what's happened. The interesting thing, of course, is Takayev has um, specifically said that there was foreign involvement, 
But what hasn't happened yet, and I think this will be really interesting, is um, for Takayev or others within the Kazakh security apparatus to actually come out and say which foreign powers specifically were involved. Because until they do that, it's just rhetoric. But if they actually come out and say this was, say, for example, you know, the Turkish or the the Kyrgyz or Uzbek forces behind it, the UK's been implicated. Some have said the US. Those are all strictly just for example. But until he actually does that, until he actually comes out and says, here's the foreign powers that were behind it, here's the evidence, then, uh, as I say, we're, we're kind of none the wiser. All right. And uh, what are your thoughts? What's going on uh, with Ukraine and, and the wider geopolitical picture of US, EU, Russia, China? Well, um, it's, I mean, what times we're living in is, uh, as the old Chinese curse goes, may you live in interesting times, right? I'm, I, I think the Ukraine has been appallingly badly let down by the West. Um, it's basically been used as a source of sort of dodgy funding for significant Western politicians um, and uh, culminating in essentially, I mean, there's no other way to describe what happened in 2014 Baku. And um, at the same time, of course, um, I would, I, I don't agree with, you know, the maybe a certain strand of thought within the sort of Eurasianist community that would say, Oh, Ukrainian! It's not a—it's not a real people. They don't have their own, you know, right to self-determination and so on. They clearly do, and um, there are many, you know. And as a, a a national movement seeking self-determination, we have a lot of sympathy for uh, Ukraine in that. I think um, Ukraine continuing to take steps that um, provokes. Um, Russia is a path that is fraught with difficulties. And the biggest difficulty is it's not clear for all, from all the, the highfalutin rhetoric that the Western powers are actually going to do anything. Um, they haven't said they're going to, in any serious way, consider admission of Ukraine into NATO. And they're putting token numbers of troops into Ukraine. Um, so so they're basically letting Ukrainians get on with it. At the same time, they are um, acting in a way as to provoke and aggregate, um, um, ag you know, really wind up the Russians. Um, I think Russia has genuine security concerns um, with regard to the expansion of NATO. Um, it, all of this is just deeply tragic. You know, <laughs> we could... Uh, the West and Russia had, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in the 90s to start rebuilding. Um, I think that the fact that Russia has taken a more socially conservative line is a major under-discussed piece of the picture. Um, for me, the transition within, say, the U.S. State Department that took place happened not in 2014, but in 2013, um, as it became clear that 
Russia wasn't on board with the walk agenda. I, I think that uh, what we're likely to see uh, is a lot of NATO huffing and puffing, um, a lot of provocation of Russia, um, but uh, very little real help on the ground um, for the Ukrainians. Um, Ukraine is basically treated as a sort of putative battlefield and um, it is um, as there's been very little encouragement um, for Ukraine to actually take the sort of steps that would help it normalize its relations with Russia and to rebuild um, there. Um, obviously, there's responsibility on the Russian side as well. Um, I think the Russian concerns, however, about the expansion of NATO are, are justified. And uh, certainly this talk about um, self-determination and so on that we've seen in recent um, days is, is so hypocritical. It's like one law for Kosovo and another for Lugansk and Donetsk. Um, so this is, this is the game NATO has chosen to play. Uh, George Keenan was entirely right in all of his warnings. I think a far better security solution for the countries of Eastern Europe would have been if they had to if they had formed their own uh, regional security alliance. Um, but the expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe, um, more or less essentially surrounding Russia, has been a bit of a disaster. And uh, we're bearing the consequences. And you now have an incredible degree of belligerence, not just from the unionist uh, politicians here in Scotland, um, but also from the, the establishment Scottish National Party, um, who are dominated by a Euro-Atlanticist wing. And at Restore Scotland, we would like to put forward a different vision uh, for what uh, security could look like in an independent Scotland. Uh, so essentially, this is not official party policy, but it's always been my position that we would hold out for a form of uh, neutrality, um, maybe perhaps a pragmatic neutrality, uh, in the sense that we would obviously work together with other countries if we were ever faced with an imminent threat, um, but um, an independent Scotland should be out with, of NATO. Uh, it should stay outside of the European Union and it should be a voice, hopefully, of uh, sanity and a voice for peace in the world. Um, my last question then would be, um, you know, I was thinking of a recent interview with Johnny Vedmore talking about the Great Reset and he he's not a Christian, but he was saying that he talks to a lot of people who think that we're, we're, we could potentially be looking at some type of biblical type uh, apocalypse. So we're having a lot of secular people talking about, you know, the book of Revelation. And then I have guests on uh, such as yourself, who's a Christian or Patrick Wood, uh, who's a Christian um, or, or others, uh, Jim Jatris uh, as well, who I've interviewed, you know, are, are we uh, living in as John from Patmos described, uh, the end times. We've got, you know, the Great Reset, World Economic Forum, Global Government, Dystopian. Uh, we've got the powder keg of, of future possible, you know, global war. What are your thoughts? Well, I think um, 
Uh, biblical prophecy is absolutely fascinating. It's um, well worth looking into, even if you're not uh, not a Christian. And the prophecy is about uh, the second coming, essentially the end of the world, the last days, however it's referred to, uh, are uh, concrete and they're comprehensible and they're comprehensive. And um, and you can find them both in the Old and New Testament. Um, and from a geopolitical perspective, one of the interesting things about them is that they, there's definitely a sense with biblical prophecy that at the end, everything becomes global. I mean, there's this constant reference to all people, all nations, and so on. Um, there's talk of a global currency system, uh, which is something that would be hard to imagine, um, you know, a thousand or even two thousand years ago. Um, there are lots of uh, reference. There's references, for instance, to uh, hyperinflation. So there are lots of very specific events that uh, are referred to that couldn't have happened sometime in the past, uh, and now can. Um, references to the state of Israel and so on. So I mean, I I, I think um, it's. It's, it certainly seems as though, if you want to take the obstetric analogy, it seems as though um, uh, we're we're full term. <laughs> Maybe uh, there's uh, the beginnings of some form of birth pangs. Um, but uh, another interesting uh, observation I would have about that is it, it, it is becoming this sort of theme that people are picking up, even people who are not of faith or not uh, of the Christian faith anyway. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed is that people are maybe suggesting that some form of self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, personally, that's nuts. I mean, no Christian would want to... Um, uh, precipitate a time of trouble that's described as worse than any time in human history. Uh, nor would any uh, non-believer, I think, want to precipitate events that would confirm the the, the biblical prophecies. Um, instead, I think it's uh, I, I think uh, it's up to us to to look at them, to take them seriously, uh, the predictions in Scripture. And um, uh, yeah, and follow the warnings. Yeah, there's a handful of people who have this extreme posture that, uh, you know, there's a group of people today using the Bible as, as a sort of a playbook. And I, I, for me, that's the complete inverse of the understanding that this was predicted, let's say, by God, what would happen. Like this was going to happen. It was, he kind of laid out, okay, this is going to happen. It's not like, it's not the reverse where people are using it as a playbook. It's just, it's, that's why it's called a, a, a prophecy. So uh, any final thought uh, for us then? Um, well, if, if the first thing to say, obviously, is if you're uh, living in Scotland or you have a connection to Scotland, um, as I said at the beginning, it's really important that people uh, don't, Hope. And one of the ways that you can uh, do that is by acting politically. Um, if you're not in Scotland or you don't have any connection to us, uh, then find uh, ways of getting involved politically locally. You know, most most parties are a small team of volunteers and uh, enthusiasts. 
you can make a huge difference. And we would really encourage people, uh, if you share our scepticism about global government and the European Union, if you share our scepticism about trying to find you know, these broad overarching solutions for all of humanity, if you really believe in the local, if you believe in autonomy, if you believe in national self-determination and sovereignty, get involved in politics, make a difference, be heard. So, um, And for those of those of your listeners that are in Scotland or, as I say, have a connection to Scotland, uh, RestoreScotland.org is where we're at. And we've got a big announcement coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks. We are planning to change the party name to Sovereignty. Uh, this was a popular initiative amongst the members of the party. So um, as of a couple of weeks from now, we'll be uh, Sovereignty. And you'll be able to find us at Sovereignty.scot. In the time for the time being, if you go to RestoreScotland.org, you'll be able to follow what we're up to. Great. I was just going to ask you that question: where would be the best place to find uh, you? Uh, and there you have it. Uh, all right. It's it's always great catching up with you, uh, David. I wish Restore Scotland or Sovereignty great success. If I were Scottish, I would be voting for your party. Uh, thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, and after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms, Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.